Hey, and welcome to the Humanity Church Podcast. So excited that you're here. We hope that you enjoy this week's talk and it really connects to your life in a meaningful way. If you're live in the Pomona area, we would love to have you at one of our gatherings at 10 a.m. or at one of our humanity groups that meet all throughout the week all over the city. If you want more information about our community, you can go to www.humanitychurch.com or download our app on your phone on Apple or Android. If you like what you're hearing here and want to continue to support the ongoing work at Humanity, you can text the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977 and give back financially in just about 10 seconds. Hey, and here's this week's talk that was given live at our Sunday gathering at Humanity Church. Well, last week we started a conversation uh, called Beyond the Hashtag, and it's, it's really a, a discussion around what it looks like to be a people of biblical justice. Last, last summer we were thrust into a conversation, whether you wanted to or not, around what justice looked like in our society. And it was interesting because as soon as we found ourselves thrust into that conversation, there was instant infighting. It, it was as if we just threw a cultural bomb out there. And it wasn't necessarily even that we disagreed on some fundamentals. It was that everyone kind of went their own which way. And then we started what I call the hashtag wars, right? Where you, if you you posted the wrong hashtag, you were clearly an evil person. If you posted the right hashtag, I knew exactly where you stood. If you you posted the hashtag that you were supposed to, we knew the totalitarian view, a total view of everything that you believe about everything. If you posted this, we knew exactly what political camp you were in or not in. And, And we really got off topic from what it looks like to be a people of justice to what it looks like to manage your social media well and to manage your public opinion and your public persona well. And, and we've become a society where you can post something like a blanket statement on social media and we feel like we've made our impact on society. But like, hey, as if a hashtag is going to solve a, a racial conversation that's going, been going on for 400 plus years, as if posting a hashtag was going to solve world poverty, as if posting a hashtag was going to fix America's political problems. And we find ourselves thinking that's going to be the solution when reality, actually based on algorithms in social media, all it does is leave you preaching to the choir. And hearing from the same people that believe the exact same thing that believe what you believe. Now, I, I want you to hear me. There's nothing wrong with posting your opinions, your thoughts, your, your politics even on social media. Have at it. Go away with it. But when that replaces an action of how I'm actually going to be with my neighbor or how I'm going to be with the person over there that is struggling, that's where things get screwy. Because we can actually imagine that we've made a difference when all we've done is made a post. <laughs> When we're actually called to step into relationship with that someone over there. And so, so what happens is when we get into these hashtag wars with one another, and then we're frustrated that things aren't shifting, we just keep thinking, I just need to pit another failed system against another failed system to figure out what system's going to move this thing forward. I, I was with my son and some of his friends last weekend, and they had these dinosaurs out all over the ground, and they were arguing with one another, which, who was the greatest dinosaur, you know, as five, four-year-olds do, and, and it was like, oh, you know, Triceratops is the greatest dinosaur, and, and he, you know, he has these three horns, and he, he could defeat a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and another kid was like, no, the T-Rex is the best one, he could rip the Tyrannosaurus, the Triceratops head off, you know, all this, they're, they're going back and forth as to which dinosaur is the coolest, and I said, you know, you know what's the coolest dinosaur of them all? The asteroid that killed them. <laughs> I was like, because here's the thing, 
None of them exist anymore, right? <laughs> so so you, you were basically arguing of which of the failed species is the best. <laughs> and I realize that this is oftentimes what we do in our conversation around justice, as we have conversations around which one of these failing systems are, is actually the best one. And then let's post a bunch of hashtags about which failing system is the one that we should actually find ourselves in. And here's the thing. The crazy part of all of this is that the scriptures talk so much about justice. It, I mean, it is filled with scriptures. Last week, if you didn't listen to the podcast, listen to it this week. I mean, it is just passage after passage after passage around what justice actually means. I don't know how you can't read the scriptures without engaging some kind of conversation around what justice looks like. But it brings us to this age-old question of what matters most to God, what's most important to God. We, we, we used the, the image last week of, does he care more that an orphan has something to eat or that their soul is taken care of? And, and, and really, we are forced so often into this either-or conversation. Have you felt that over the last year? Like you're just forced to choose between this reality or this reality, and it really forces us into this false binary where we were never actually forced to choose between an either or. See, we, we live in a lot of that these days, and I think we like to get into the either or conversation because it takes the complexity out of life, and it just makes it super clear. Well, God cares most about whether or not they eat, or God cares most about their eternal security, when it doesn't actually have to be an either or, it certainly makes things less complicated, but it doesn't have to be that way. For, for example, I, I'm married to Marla, and I have a covenant with her before God that I will honor and cherish and protect and love her for all the days of our life. Now, the proof of that document, the proof of that covenant is more than just a legal document. We have a legal document. I can pull it out. It's somewhere in a drawer somewhere. And I can say, look, I have a legal document that we are in a covenant relationship with one another. But that is actually not the proof of the covenant. The proof of the covenant is that I actually care for her. The proof of the covenant is that I actually serve her. The proof of the covenant is that I actually give everything for her, honest, cherished, sacrifice. See, if I didn't do that, we'd still have the covenant. But people might question, right? Are you actually in? Like, you actually okay with this? Like, this is something that you actually want? It's interesting in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, this is what it says to us about our faith, our covenant with God as people. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of us says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? This is the equivalent of, hey, prayers and good wishes. But does nothing about his physical needs, what, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accomplished by action. Faith itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So here's the thing, if you are a person that is informed by the movement of Jesus, engaging in justice is one of the evidences of that. It's not an either or, it's that the reality is, is that if your soul has been secured by Jesus, an evidence of that is that your life will be moving towards a life of justice, moving towards a life of making sure that people are cared for in the way that they were designed to care for. A sign that you are marked by Jesus is that you care for those he cares about. 
It can't be in either or. It doesn't have to be, nor should it in the middle of that. So now it has to start with connecting with him or else it's all performance. See, I don't just say, hey, I love my wife and I care for her and honor her and cherish her so I don't, we don't really need to get married, right? It starts with the covenant and out of the covenant flows my actions. In the same way with Jesus, it starts with our connection with him and out from that flows the things that we care about because the interesting thing is that our faith is so informed by the Reformation, which the Reformation really said that knowledge is power, that if you say the right things, if you believe the right things, if you memorize the right things, then that's all you need. And so we live in a society where you can repeat facts. You don't have to live them, but everyone believes that you actually believe those facts. <laughs> where you can actually say, hey, I actually believe in a God who cares about the least of these. And then you actually do nothing to care for the least of these, and everyone actually thinks you still believe that. But the reality is, is that our beliefs are always revealed through our actions. Our beliefs are always revealed through how we live our life. And one of the reasons we are confused is because we're trying to figure out what system of justice Jesus approves of that we've already developed as human beings. We're basically like looking at all the systems of justice and going, hmm, which one of these would Jesus fit into? And this is why it's interesting that you see people across all political spectrums, across all ideologies, believe that Jesus is like 100% for their thing. Right? Yeah. All of a sudden, you, around election time, you see, oh, no, no, Jesus was clearly a Democrat because boom, 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 boom. Jesus was clearly a Republican because boom, 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 boom. Jesus was clearly a Green Party because boom, 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 boom. And so we can make Jesus fit into whatever system we find ourselves. But I wonder if that's actually the right inquiry. I wonder if that's actually why we find ourselves having the same breakdown over and over and over again. Now, I actually, for a second, want to back out of the biblical conversations to explain some of the systems that we find ourselves in, so that we, we find ourselves engaging in saying, hey, maybe this is the dinosaur that is the greatest. <laughs> maybe this is the one that's going to solve everything, when the whole time God's going, oh, we need an asteroid. <laughs> See, the problem with all of the systems of justice that we come up with is that they actually require us to ignore the problem of human brokenness. They actually all require us to just blindly ignore all of that. And then it assume that human beings are just blank slates that can be molded into something. I just want to take a look at these four major philosophies of justice in our culture. And you can probably see them in yourself, around you, in the news, wherever you go, these show up all the time. The first view of justice is really a libertarian view of justice, and that justice is all about freedom. And really, a libertarian view of justice says that if we give the individual as much freedom as possible, that will solve everything. Now, now there is a reality to this that is biblical because it speaks to the individual freedom that God longs for us to have. But what this view of justice actually misses is that it doesn't consider our communal nature, that we aren't just individuals, that we were actually meant to be knit together. And it actually doesn't consider how our brokenness will inform our freedom. Because guess what? Yes, if I'm freed up, I have an infinite level of possibility to use my freedom for good. But if I have no restrictions, I am also infinitely freed up to use my freedom for evil. And I don't know if that's the type of society that we want to just let run rampant everywhere we go. See, people are 
completely free to create beauty, but then they are also completely free to create as much destruction as we want in the name of freedom. The other thing that this view of justice doesn't take into account is that it is a perspective that says, I am free from something. I need to be free from the government. I need to be from systems. I need to be from someone controlling me, but it actually doesn't have a conversation about what I'm free to, which that's what the scriptures is in a conversation about. It's not really in a conversation about what you're free from. It's really, what are you freed up to go do? And it doesn't inform us much of that. Now, the second view of justice that we find throughout culture is what we call classic liberalism. And this is really a view of justice that's all about fairness. Now, I know in the church you use the word liberal, and it's instantly like flags up. But most people don't know what we talk about when we talk about liberalism in the context of justice. Because what they would say is that Freedom is the ultimate goal, but freedom must be supplemented with certain laws and procedures and rights to maintain those rights. Like everyone can be free, but we need to make sure that we have policy around education so people get educated. Everyone can be free, but we need to have policy around healthcare so that we can have equal outcomes so that everyone at the end of the day will be the same. Now, the biblical part about this, the interesting thing is that this idea of classic liberalism is only found in cultures that have Judeo-Christian values at their core. It's only found in those systems anywhere we go. And we oftentimes are called to use our freedom to serve others, which means, hey, I'm going to lay down part of my rights to make sure that your freedom is taken care of. I'm going to lay down my agenda to make sure that you over there are taken care of. Now, the thing that liberalism misses with us when it comes to justice is that in order for this to work, there has to be a moral absolute that everyone agrees upon. And not just like a, hey, this is a, uh, this is a good idea, but like, no, this is absolutely what human beings were designed for. There cannot be feelings about what's right. There can't be opinions about what's right. It's just that this is what rights. Otherwise, there's a never-ending splintering of whose rights and privileges take priority. So, so, so is, it, is it the poor that we need to take care of first? Is it the racial discrimination that we need to take up first? Is it gender that we need to take up first? And we, kind, we find ourselves splintering into smaller and smaller groups. And in this, then, faith is almost seen as archaic. It's interesting. As I was writing this passage, an article popped up from The Atlantic, which I read almost all their articles. And if you know anything about The Atlantic, it's a pretty left-leaning uh, journal. And it was talking about how as faith is declining in America, they're noticing that chaos is increasing. And they're actually saying, hey, they're actually in this wonderment of, wow, maybe there is something to having a moral standard that we can look at that informs us of what is absolutely true about human beings that could inform us as to where we're going and how we're headed. And here's the thing that it also doesn't take into account, that because of our own brokenness, we will actually never have equal outcomes. As, as wonderful as that idea sounds, just like people are free to do whatever they want, people are also free to do whatever they want. <laughs> and so we will never actually achieve that this side of heaven. The other view of justice is called a utilitarian view, and it is justice is all about happiness. And this would say that whatever makes people happiness, whatever makes people happiest without harm is the greatest justice. Now, the great biblical part of that is that it speaks to the joy that we were made for. The scriptures say that the joy of the Lord is our strength. What this misses is that we know that thing, everything that makes us happy is not necessarily good for us or society. You know, like what makes me happy is ice cream every meal, right? I know that that's not the best thing for me or for anyone else around me in life. 
The, the other thing that this doesn't answer is what happens when what makes me happy harms you or what makes you happy harms me. Whose happiness trumps the other person's happiness in this conversation? So we miss it. So we have this libertarian view of justice, which is all about freedom. We have this classic liberalism view of justice, which is all about fairness. We have this utilitarian view of justice, which is all about happiness. And then we have this postmodern view of justice, which is all about power. And it would say that all unequal outcomes in life can only be explained through systems of power. This is where we get the word, the man, right? <laughs> that we hear and we throw out in jokes and conversations with one another. And, and it says that everything is informed by these power systems and keeping these power systems in place. Now, here's the biblical thing about this is that Jesus actually spoke to systems and powers of this world that were evil. He talked about this. He said, look, there are certain power structures in our world that need to be dismantled. And Jesus was actually crucified by a highly corrupt power system. His death came about because of that. Now, what it misses in this is that unlike the, liber unlike the libertarian view of things, this completely dismisses the individual. It completely dismisses individual responsibility or individual contribution or identity. And this actually requires us not to see individuals, but it requires us to only see people in the context of groups. And it creates a hierarchy of groups. And then it presupposes that those who are in the oppressed group are holy and need to have the power back. And so... Whenever there are unequal outcomes, the goal is to dismantle power systems to get the holy ones into power so that we can have equal outcomes again in the middle of this. Now, this makes reconciliation impossible because there is a never-ending overturning of who's in power and who isn't in the conversation. And then we actually find out that it wasn't power that corrupts people, it's character that corrupts people, as Dr. Martin Luther King kept informing us. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't need to examine certain power structures that aren't corruptible and corrupting, but at the end of the day, power isn't what corrupts. So we have all these systems out there that we're fighting over, saying, which one's the best? Which theory would Jesus fit in with? See why we're in this mess? <laughs> And the interesting thing is they all take bits and pieces of this movement of Jesus and call it holy and then misses out on the other thing. I wonder if a better inquiry in this is what is the system that Jesus is wanting to build? See, because I actually don't think he's wanting to build a system. I think he's wanting to introduce a kingdom back into us that transform everything. Now notice, even if you're inside of you, even in my explanation of those systems, if there's something inside of you that's making excuses or justifying or saying, oh, but Nathan doesn't understand, right? Or no, but hold on, there, there's this thing, you didn't explain it that well. Now I didn't explain all justice theories in 30 <laughs> seconds like this. But even just notice the need inside of you to be right about whatever system you prefer. There's this drive to believe this is what it is. Because here's the thing. We as human beings are addicted to this fantasy that easy solutions are going to come. They're going to create clear-cut answers, and they're going to make sense of the chaos around the world around us. That, that we can just find the right system, and then we'll find ourselves in the easiest solution that will create clear-cut answers for everyone. And we're assuming that when we get the right system, then suddenly human beings will start acting right. That if we get the right ism in place, then suddenly humanity will be cured from its 
humanity. <laughs> and we will find ourselves now redeemed in the middle of this. It's interesting how our brokenness has a way of gaming any system, isn't it? It's interesting how, how in any system that we find ourselves in, our brokenness finds a way to weasel its way in, to take advantage of, to exploit, to do what it wants. This, by the way, is why I do not use the term social justice. I know it's a very popular term in our culture today, but as long as we are looking to society to inform us of what is just, we will always be searching. This is why the Bible only talks about God's justice in the scriptures, because justice is justice, period, in any context that we find ourselves in, no matter what society you find yourself in. And no matter what society looks like 20 years from now or 30 years ago, justice is justice. Righteousness is righteousness in this. Now, Jesus had this kingdom that he was longing to introduce that would transcend all of these systems that we've invented. He is not looking to figure out how to fit into our ideologies, he is not looking of how can I fit into your political systems and your systems of justice. He's looking actually to answer the larger question of why. Why isn't justice happening? Why isn't justice happening? Why are people being oppressed? Why are there people that are on the fringe? Why are there those that are marginalized? That's the question that Jesus is wanting to answer. Because when we can answer that question, we know the what and the how. It actually becomes really clear in this conversation. See, biblical justice is about righteousness and love. That's what biblical justice at its core is about. It says whether there is human darkness impacting the kingdom of light and love from reigning, we must step in and bring righteousness back to that place. Where darkness has infiltrated the human story, there is a need to bring light into those places. Where fear has overcome the human story, love must flood into those spaces so that they can be made right. And here's the thing. It fully accounts for our human brokenness being the reason why there is injustice in this world. It basically says this is a human problem that is not going away anytime soon. It's one of the reasons why Jesus is so annoying when he says that all of our problems are not going to be fixed here. Isn't that annoying? I mean, look, I, I, I am always so tempted as a pastor to go down this road of like, hey, just come to Jesus and your life's going to be a pretty picture. We're just going to wrap it up with a bow. Everything's going to be healed. You're going to be good. Your money's going to be overflowing. Your health is going to be good. Your children are never going to disobey. You're going to go out of here and you're going to have a good sense of, I mean, we can go down the whole list. It would be so easy to do that. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus says things like this in John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, yeah. right? <laughs> but take heart, I have overcome the world. But this is part of the, the, Jesus leaves the mystery intact, which is part of the beautiful thing about Jesus. He says, look, you're not going to have it figured out this side of heaven. Now, but that doesn't mean we stop trying, that doesn't mean we stop engaging. That doesn't mean we stop refining. Because I know a lot of Christian movements will just leave it at that. Well, hey, in this world we'll have trouble, so let's just get to heaven. When Jesus says, no, 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 in this world have trouble, do not forget I have overcome the world. <laughs> so it is your job as a overcomer to step into the world and bring a sense of hope and peace and love and joy into those contexts wherever you find yourself. And 
All of creation, the scriptures say, is groaning for a savior. It is groaning for redemption. It is groaning for light to be brought into the darkness. And he invites us to recognize our own brokenness and our own need for a redemption. And then once we have been redeemed, to identify those who also are in need of redemption, to identify the outsider, to identify the enslaved, to identify the oppressed, to identify the marginalized, and to invite them to look towards a savior in us and that transforms everything around us. And then he's crazy enough to say, now all of you, you now become transformation agents in your world. You now become justice agents everywhere you go. And only then can we understand the revolutionary concept of power that Jesus introduces into our kingdom. In James 1.27, it says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted from the world. Zechariah 7.10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts do not think evil of each other. Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless, fatherless and the widow. He frustrates the way of the wicked. Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 19, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. In case you missed it, there are three groups that, Jesus, that the scriptures keep bringing up over and over and over again. <laughs> that is orphans, widows, and the immigrant. Every single time, over and over and over again, because I want to pause this morning and talk a little about them and why the scriptures keep bringing them up over and over and over again. Because here's the thing, in that conversation, what God is really attempting to do is reveal an attitude of heart that lives inside of us and to talk through how these are issues of justice and restoring righteousness into them. When God was imagining how he was going to bring more image bearers into the world, when he starts with Adam and Eve, and he's like, all right, we got two. Let's figure out how we're going to keep this thing going, right? He could have invented an infinite number of ways to bring image bearers, human beings, into the world. Could have used a stork, right? It's like a good narrative that we've developed. Like a bird just, could you imagine one day you're just sipping coffee, and a bird comes and leaves a baby on your doorstep, right? Oh, I guess we're having a newborn. He could have certainly used that method. He could have just like appeared magically one day and like the 5th of May or something like that was baby day and everyone got their baby. You're kind of like lottery with that. He, he is a big fan of immaculate conception, right? So you could have just like wake up one day and go, oh, I'm pregnant, right? So that could have been the case. So he could have used a number of systems, but, but, but God in his infinite wisdom designed one way that all human beings come into existence. And that is that every human being on the planet comes into fruition by one biological male and one biological female coming together to create another image bearer. And in that, this concept, this beautiful context of family was created. He creates this powerful structure to bring image bearers into the world. And that when a man and woman come together to create another image bearer, that it creates this instant context for safety and protection and nurturing and care and development and security and advancement. 
And this is still statistically true today. As far as I've known, every single human being has come into being with one part of a man and one part of a woman coming together to create another person. Now, here's the thing. Because we don't live in utopia, because of the human condition that we find ourselves in, our brokenness impacts this powerful dynamic, this powerful structure that God designed for every image bearer to step into with their lives. Fathers choose to leave or die. Husbands choose to check out, say, hey, I'm no longer interested in this, to leave, to die. And suddenly when a family structure, specifically in this context, is missing a father or missing a husband in this space, the the structure is now left vulnerable. The, the, The thing that was designed to actually create a safe and nurturing environment now becomes broken, and there's not a context to step into anymore, leaving the structure that was designed for support now fractured. And in this Jewish context, it would leave the widow without any way to earn income, completely vulnerable to the world around them which, of course, would lend the society to move towards taking advantage of them. Oh, here's a woman who needs money. So I can exploit her for whatever I need because she has a need in the middle of this. And in that, their status of image bearer would be diminished. This is why I have so much empathy and respect and love for our single moms and dads in our community. Because there is a space where... You're left vulnerable to someone saying, ah, I can take advantage of you now in your lowly state. Now, I have no intention of changing your political opinion about welfare today. I don't even want to have that conversation, but I will say this. It's possible to have deep empathy and compassion with any political position, to recognize that this is a reality. In fact, the scriptures say that every single one of us was once an orphan, spiritually. So we know what it's like to be without a secure spiritual parent. So we could oftentimes identify with what it might be like to be left without a father to cover us. And some of us know what that's been like all too well. In fact, in my coaching and in my counseling and the work that I do with people all over the United States, I can't tell you how many of our own brokenness goes back to decisions that our parents made about how they would be there or how they would not be there, leaving us in some way, shape, or form orphaned. And that's where brokenness is often introduced into our lives. Now, the same thing goes for the alien or the immigrant. Alien is the the word that the scriptures often use. Now, here's the thing. It is almost impossible to have this conversation without a lens of politics around it. I've been trying to figure out how to have this conversation outside of this. So if we could, for a moment, pull back around a conversation about laws and borders and walls and DACA and dreamers and amnesty, if you could just suspend that for a moment, because I'm actually not in that conversation right now. I'd like for you just to consider for a moment what it would be like to be in a culture that was so broken where the infrastructure had failed so dramatically that you looked around and you thought, I have no hope for myself or for my children And the only possible solution for not just a better life, but for survival would be to leave everything. I mean, just think about your own home and your own being longings and your friend and your workplace. Imagine how desperate you would have to get to say, I'm leaving everything. To go 
to a strange land that I don't know the language, I don't know the culture, I don't understand the food and the music doesn't make sense, I don't understand the currency, I don't even understand how the laws make sense, but I know that this is the only hope that I could possibly have for a life for myself or for my children. And when you find yourself there, it's quite easy to be taken advantage of because now you're left vulnerable, just like an orphan or widow. And it's easy for others to look and say, oh, you have a need. I can exploit that need. I can take advantage of that need. I can now marginalize and place you, put you in a place of deep debt to me. Now, I equally do not want to change your political position about immigration. I have no intention of doing that this morning. But it is possible to also have deep empathy and compassion and hope with any political position. In fact, the scriptures say that we are immigrants, that we are sojourners in a strange land called earth. (laughs) And we are just making our way through this until we actually get to our home. So we, of all people, should have a deep understanding of what it's like to be strangers in a strange land. Now, with all of these circumstances, whether it's with the orphan or with the widow or with the, whether it's with the immigrant, the human condition is left vulnerable in this space. They're, they're left with a gaping hole that can be taken advantage of. Now, oftentimes, they didn't choose the circumstances that they found themselves in. Oftentimes, widows don't choose that their husband dies. Children don't choose that their dad or mom leaves, Right? Immigrants don't choose that their entire country falls apart around them and they have to leave everything that they know. They may choose the action of where they're going, but they don't get to choose the circumstances at times where they find themselves in. And even if they did, they are still left marginalized and in need in these positions. And this is the part that Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. That's what this means. Now, God recognized, for those of us who aren't orphans, widows, or immigrants, that we might have the temptation to look at this through one of two lenses. We might look at it through the lens of, that's not my fault, and it's actually really not my responsibility. So we might actually be tempted to divorce ourselves from the reality that we as Christians say we are all connected in one body, and that when you suffer, I suffer. And that when you have a need, I have a need. That we might be tempted to divorce ourselves from that conversation and say, this does not have anything to do with me. Or worse, we might be tempted to take a look at this and say, you are vulnerable and I have a need. So I can now take advantage of that need. And because of greed or fear, we often have eyes for these individuals in one way. Or in other ways, we miss them completely. My grandfather often talks about how sociologists call these the background people because they just exist in the background. They're the people working in your grocery store. They're the people often serving you food or cooking your food. They're the people working multiple jobs at at retail to make sure that they can just make it through the month. They're the background people that we don't really pay attention to, but they're constantly there. And it's so easy to fall into a place where we don't even see them let alone see the need that's over there. See, this is not a political issue. This is an image-bearer issue. It really has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with, do I see that image-bearer over there, and do I see the need that they actually have? Because in these situations, whether it's the orphan or the widow or the immigrant, it is so easy to diminish the image of God. 
And I have never seen this more heinously in the memes people post about these people online. And it's all about seeing through a new lens. See, Jesus is not actually interested in having a conversation about how do we uproot the government and how do we change this and how do we do that. That's not the conversation he's in. He's actually saying, you first have to see them. You actually first have to have eyes to say, oh, look, that person is in need over there. That person has the potential to be taken advantage of. That person over there is struggling. Until we have eyes to see, it doesn't matter what political system we put in. We have to see first. And here is the radical power structure that Jesus offers us. He says this in Galatians 5, 13 through 15. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free. But... Always the but there, right? <laughs> but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather to serve one another in love. The entire law is signed, summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. He says, everyone, look, every single human being on the planet, you were called to be free. That the moment you connect with me, you are set free spiritually. So use your freedom to go serve one another. <laughs> Service is the revolution of power that Jesus is interested in introducing into the kingdom. That is how you overthrow power, you serve. Bringing righteousness and justice where unrighteousness has reigned to protect and elevate the widow, the orphan, the immigrant in any situation to restore the rightness that is missing from their life. To bring light into the darkness that is over there with that person. And here's the thing, here's the thing that's crazy too, is most of these justice systems that we talk about are about creating stasis, right? right? Yep. It's about how can we get everyone on this basic playing field? Right. Now, Jesus is actually not interested in that conversation. He, he actually is not interested in having a baseline conversation about equity. What he's having interested in having a conversation is, how do I take every single human being on the planet and elevate them to the highest level that they are capable of living at? See, he's not, he's not even interested in how do we get people to stasis. What he's saying is, how do we lift every single person up? And he's saying, the way that we do that is we take all of the freedom that we've given and we serve one another. See, because much of what we've been invited into, much of what has been indoctrinated into us is a zero-sum game when it comes to justice. In order for those struggling to win, someone has to lose. There is only so much power. There is only so much love. There is only so much possibility. There is only so much equity. And Jesus is not actually in that conversation because that is a scarcity conversation. It is very limited. See, what he is in a conversation around is abundance. See, because if I am called to see first everyone as image bearers of God himself, every widow, every orphan, every immigrant that I come across, if I am called first to see them as image bearers of God, the question isn't who needs to be diminished to elevate them up. The question needs to be, how can I elevate this person back to the image bearer status that God created them to live in? See, it's not about what do I need to take from someone else. It's about how do I invest into this person so that they are elevated in this space. So the question isn't whose voice do we need to center. Jesus answered that. It's him. 
Our job is to serve and serve and serve until everyone is raised up with the hope and dignity in him. And that is radical justice. You have no business shouting at the darkness if you're not going to shine a light. So, the beautiful thing about this is that there's no need to divide people up into groups to begin with. It says, look, whatever freedom you've been given, serve with it. Everyone, look around you, serve. He says, you want to find your life? Give it away. You want, to, you want to find the power that's available to you? Just, just give it away and see if you and your community might find life more abundantly in that context. See, if God himself would say, hey, you know what I'm willing to do? I am willing to lower myself to become a human being so that I could come and walk among you and demonstrate what it looks like to be justice, lowering himself to that level so that he could serve at the greatest capacity follow, to, uh, possible for him and then be crucified on our behalf, we certainly can go out and figure out how do I use my freedom to serve the world around us. See, and even in that, you might say, well, see, Jesus lowered himself. Well, guess what? In that, he was raised to the highest position possible. And he invites us, what? To sit right next to him in the heavenly realms. He actually says, you cannot outserve me. The more that you serve, the more that you give, it will be given back to you. He is not in a zero-sum game. This is not a question of how do we distribute this evenly. It's how do we open the floodgates of abundance. For every human being that we see. Now, this does mean that some of us recognize that we have more freedom than others. That we've just been, we just live in more freedom. So those of us who have been given much, we serve much. And see, once again, the orphan and the widow and the immigrant is elevated back to being seen as an image bearer. How can I get this person to be seen as an image bearer? When they have eyes to see the image bearer. See, here's the the beautiful thing, is that when, when an orphan or a widow or an immigrant is elevated back up to the space of image bearer, they have then eyes to see the outsider, the oppressed, and the marginalized better than anyone else. This is why I love our Celebrate Life program. Because Celebrate Life at its core is a justice program. It's a justice program. It takes a look at those who are marginalized and who are on the outside and say, how can I bring you into this? And you know who has the best eye for an addict? Someone who has been elevated out of the status of addict and back into image bearer. And in the same way, when an orphan or a widow or an immigrant and the, the list goes on and on and on in the scriptures. Those are just the top three. It says when they are elevated back to their position, guess what? They now get to use that freedom to go out and serve the oppressed, the marginalized, the poor, to make sure that they are also remembered in the middle of this. This is why single moms know the struggle of single moms better than anyone else on the planet. Cultural outsiders understand the struggle better than any single person on the planet. They are invited to lead out in the conversation, not in shaming, but in serving. How do I serve in the middle of this? We are all invited up into justice. This is a very radical conversation, distinct from what we find ourselves in at times. Now, here's the countercultural part of this. Does Jesus see individuals? Yes. Does Jesus see groups? Yes. 
I love the paradox of the birth of the movement of Jesus in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. It says this about the church. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. Now, it's interesting in our culture today, people use this passage and they're always like, ha, the church is a socialist organization. <laughs> I can see how you can see that. Especially if you read this, like they sold everything and lived in a commune, right? But what I love is this, it says, they sold their position, they sold their possessions and gave to everyone as they had need. See, if I am understanding when to sell my possessions and to step into that radical way of living, it actually requires me to be looking for the needs of others. It actually requires us as a community to be looking around and saying, what are the needs out there? in this communal living that I find myself in. See, see, they didn't actually, it doesn't actually say everyone sold all their stuff to make sure that everyone was equal. It said, hey, as you had need, I was willing to give of my stuff. We all sacrificed to make sure that there wasn't a need in the middle of this. See, the beautiful thing, it also says they all sold their possessions. They all gave. They all sacrificed. They all served. See, what this doesn't create is one set of rules for the rich and one set of rules for the the less rich. (laughs) It says, this isn't everything. Again, this this isn't a formula. Like, once you get $100,000, now you are instructed to give. Once you get $200,000, you better give more. It, It says, everyone, no matter where you're at, give. See, here's the crazy thing. I I know people who make less money than you could ever imagine. (laughs) And they are so generous with their resources. And and I know people, I've walked with people as as when they were making, you know, a little bit of money in the beginning, had a little bit of things, and they said, oh, one day, one day when I get wealthy, I'm going to be so generous. Then when I walk with them through life and they get the promotion, they get the raise, they get the new car, they get the house, they're making like six figures. Guess what the conversation still is? One day. But now it's when I get out of debt. Then I'll be generous. See, because it has nothing to do with how much you have or how little you have. It has everything to do with the attitude of heart. And this is the, this is the radical power differentiator. Because you don't actually have to wait till you're wealthy to be the most wealthy person in the room. You don't actually have to wait till you're completely free to be the freedom bringer in the room. Whatever freedom you have, serve from that. Whenever there's a need, we sacrifice together to give to that. Now this requires us to hold our money, our possessions, our resources. For some of you, that's not a big deal. For some of you, it's your calendar to hold that loosely. See, This also requires me to look and see who's out there because without there, without this, there is no justice. Without this, there is no restoration. 
if everyone's just waiting for someone else to do the job. Like someone else will take care of this. This is someone else's responsibility. But he calls us into a conversation with how do we together elevate everyone in our space? See, at the end of the day, biblical justice stems from a changed perspective that every single human being is a beautiful, powerful image bearer of God, a potential child of God. There is this universal righteousness that God has woven into the fabric of the universe not to play gotcha or to shame us, but to set us up to win. He actually says, look, I've actually given you the rule book, but not so that I can impose rules on you, but so that you know how to play to win. And because of our brokenness, there are, there are places and circumstances where righteousness is lacking and that image gets diminished, that image gets trampled on, that image gets taken advantage of, that image gets owned. And it finds itself lowering what it's capable of. And those of us who have been redeemed by God, we've been given a new perspective, new eyes to see the world around us. We have been redeemed, and so we then become redeemers in the world. Our lives bring the light of God wherever that is, there is darkness. And because we know, we know what it's like to be a spiritual orphan, we are those who go seeking out the fatherless. Because we know what it's like to be strangers in a strange land, we go seeking out those who are aliens and immigrants and say, how can I elevate the image of God within you? We cover the marginalized. We protect the oppressed. We bring in the outsider and we use every ounce of our freedom to serve because we know that it's in service that the world around us engages in the revolution needed to elevate every image bearer, inviting the kingdom of God to reign with every single person, regardless of their class, regardless of their color, regardless of their gender, regardless of their background. We invite people into that space, both in this life and in the next. But it all has to start with Jesus. See, because until he shifts our perspective, all we'll be doing was figuring out what's the best dinosaur to fix this problem when God's saying, let's bring an asteroid and let's introduce the kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, God, we complicate things so much. And we recognize that there is a complexity to all of this, God, that is out of our hands, that is out of our control, God. And so we look to you we look to you as the author and the finisher of our faith, the creator of life, the one whose image we all bear. God, and we ask that you would speak to us. I pray, God, that you would supernaturally this week, every single person that's here or watching online or watching this week, God, that you would supernaturally open our eyes to see I pray this week, God, that as we go shopping, that, that it would bug us that there are single moms and dads working, God, maybe 12-hour shifts trying to figure out how to make it. Give us eyes to see. 
I pray, God, that it would bug us when we're having lunch and we're wondering, man, what, what is that person over there behind the counter that can't speak English that's making my, my food? God, what must it be like for them? How, even if it's, God, just a prayer, give us eyes to see. God, take us out of our scarcity. We are not in a zero-sum game here. We are in a conversation around abundance. Make us aware of the resource that you have given us to elevate every single person that we come in contact with, God. And this morning, if you're here and you've not yet connected to Jesus, I I don't want you to go into like performance mode, like I just got to go do a bunch of good things. That's really not what this is about. I'd love for you to be introduced to the God of the universe who wants to change your perspective, to redeem you, to elevate you, so that you have everything you need to be a source of hope and freedom in the world around you because of him. So this morning, if, you, if you've not yet connected to Jesus, you're like, man, this, this sounds like a way more exciting life than the small game I've been playing. This is your moment. If you're online, this is your moment too. I'd love for you to connect to him. If you're here in the audience, you can just look up at me or raise your hand and say, I want to connect to Jesus today. Like, I'm up for that. Or if you're online, you can just click that button that says, today, I'm making a decision to follow Jesus. If you're on Facebook or if you're on YouTube, you can just type in Jesus in the comments section. I want you to pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I give you my life. I know that I'm broken and that you died and you came to life for me so that I could live. So I give you everything. Would you come and shift my perspective to see you? And in that, that I might see those whose image of you is being taken advantage of, overlooked, marginalized. God, I give myself and the freedom you have given me to serve the world around me especially those who need it the most. I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Humanity Church Podcast. We hope that this was a meaningful experience and we look forward to connecting again next week for another conversation around what it looks like to live by faith, to be known by love, and to be a voice of hope. Again, for more information about Humanity Church, you can visit us online at humanitychurch.com. And if you want to support the ongoing work here at Humanity Church, including this podcast, you can give online in about 10 seconds by texting the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977. Thanks and have an amazing week.